Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the globe-trotting trend of building and maintaining far-right authoritarian political power by stoking the classic fear and hatred of Muslims. Clips today come from The Ezra Klein Show, Deconstructed, This Is Hell, Counterspin, and Jacobin Radio. One thing that you see in these types of debates often is an inversion of who should be afraid. The way the situation is portrayed, um, certainly in America, is that Muslims or the Muslim world poses a threat to us, right? 9-11 being the, the, the most salient example. But what you actually see right now, if you look around the world, is that the world poses a terrible threat to Muslims, that there is a level of state-sanctioned anti-Muslim policymaking, violence, bigotry that is a much deeper threat to um, the average Muslim living just almost anywhere now than the average Muslim is to anyone else. And and that you see that a lot in in, in bigotries, that they work off of this reversal of who has the most cause to be afraid. Anti-Semitism being a classic uh, example. Anti-Semitism being a very classic example. I, I completely agree. And what's interesting about the Muslim situation today, which is slowly starting to get some coverage, to be fair, more and more people are talking about the fact uh, about what's going on uh, in places like India and China and Myanmar and even Sri Lanka. But also, this is where 9-11 does play a crucial role because pre-9-11, again, you did have repressive measures towards Muslim minorities even pre-9-11. Look at the Balkans in the mid-1990s. There was an actual genocide in Europe of white people, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white Europeans who were Muslims. The Bosnian Muslims massacred in places like Srebrenica, uh, women raped and expelled from their homes, refugees for, for decades. Um, that happened pre-9-11. But what happened post-9-11 is the United States war on terror, so-called, allowed every government around the world that didn't like its Muslim minority to jump on the Bush bandwagon and say, well, we're fighting the same war that you're fighting. And every Muslim group we don't like is the same as the Muslim groups you don't like. And you saw that even in Israel, where Ariel Sharon said in 2001, after 9-11, he said, our battle with Arafat is the same as the American battle with bin Laden, which was an absurd analogy at the time. But, you know, people were trying to see what they could get away with. The Chinese, a classic example of that. When we talk about the Uyghur situation today, a million Uyghur Muslims, um, ethnically Turkic, religiously Muslim, living in Xinjiang province in China, more than a million of them, according to the UN and other human rights groups, being held in, I don't know what to call them, concentration camps, detention camps, re-education camps, prisons in Xinjiang province. And you look at the history of that conflict, and a lot of people in the West are waking up to it and are rightly condemning China, including the Trump administration, to be fair to them. It's the one issue they've been good on. But what we don't do is there's not enough self-reflection to say, well, what justifications are the Chinese using here? In fact, straight after 9-11, Ezra, the Chinese government went to the UN and said, you know what? If the US is fighting al-Qaeda, we're fighting a, a, an offshoot of al-Qaeda called the ETIM, the East Turkestan Islamic Movement a group that no one had ever heard of. No terrorism scholars had heard of them. No China watchers had heard of them. And yet the Chinese government claimed this was a major part of the Bin Laden network. And by 2002, the UN and the US had listed this group as a terrorist organization. And since then, every time the Chinese go after the Uyghurs, they say it's an anti-terrorism operation. Why should you be allowed to drone terrorists and we can't re-educate them in our camps? I want to note something that you just said that I think is uh, contrary to what has become the, the dominant conventional wisdom here, which is 
In the Trump era, a lot of people look back on George W. Bush, particularly George W. Bush right after 9-11, and things he really did say and efforts he really did make to stop the aftermath of 9-11 being just a wave of anti-Muslim bigotry. Yes. But the way they created the concept of the war on terror, the axes of evil and so on, created a context that was so malleable that a lot of other countries, a lot of other players, and in Washington and even inside the Bush administration, a lot of people who were bought into a clash of civilization rhetoric were able to create this conflation of a war they wanted to fight on terrorism with a war they wanted to fight on the Muslim world. And a lot of this weird debate that has burbled in the background for a long time, and Trump was part of it, about whether or not, and I forget the exact wording, everybody's always arguing about whether or not terrorist attacks should be called Islamic extremism or Islamic terrorism versus just terrorism. It's part of this debate. It's part of this question of, are you going to fit this into a narrative that can be used this way, or are you just going to call this terrorism and treat it as as a part not of the Muslim world, but a part of the terrorist problem, which includes white nationalist groups and includes um, just general nationalist or regime changing groups and so on. I think you're right to put your finger on it, Ezra. And, and one thing I'd throw up, and I'd be interested to hear your view, your view on this. So I wrote a piece in, I'm trying to think when, December 2015 for the New York Times. I wrote an op-ed. Uh, it was shortly after I'd moved to the US. The Republican presidential race was in full swing. Trump was in the lead. Ben Carson was in second place. And I wrote a piece saying, I miss George W. Bush. And I got attacked by my fellow lefties for that headline in the Times. And I, and it was a piece saying, for all of his many sins and all the people he killed, one thing Bush did, as you said, was after 9-11, he went to a mosque in D.C. He said, we're not at war with Islam. Muslim Americans are our friends and our fellow citizens, etc., etc." Whereas Trump at the time was saying, ban all Muslims from America. Ben Carson was talking about a Muslim Brotherhood takeover of the U.S. government. Marco Rubio was talking about shutting down Muslim cafes. Ted Cruz was talking about sending police into Muslim neighborhoods. Chris Christie was talking about turning away Muslim refugees. Uh, John Kasich was talking about setting up a Department of Judeo-Christian Values. And I was kind of like saying, you know, in this Republican Party, Bush actually looks like a moderate. He wouldn't be able to run right now because he's not as anti-Muslim as everyone else. Um, and a, a lot of the pushback I got at the time was along the lines of what you've just mentioned, which is, well, yes, he wasn't openly bigoted. He wasn't saying making crude anti-Muslim slurs or smears or conspiracy theories, but he did invent an architecture of domestic repression in which Muslims in the US were surveilled, detained held up at airports, had their mosques spied on, etc. And of course, abroad, he killed a hell of a lot of Muslims. And it, now the argument becomes, you know, is it better for Trump to say the quiet part loud and just own up to what previous presidents, including Obama, were doing, which is basically targeting Muslim groups, but saying this is not a war on Islam or Muslims, it's a war on a generic idea, a noun on terrorism? Or do you own up to it and say, actually, this is a war against certain groups of Muslims and lots of Muslims are going to die in the process? Um, and I'm always torn on that because on the one hand, obviously, you want people just you know to say it as it is. On the other hand, there are huge implications to talking in the way that Trump does, one of those being the massive rise in hate crimes, anti-Muslim hate crimes here in the US and across the world as a result of his brazen Islamophobia. Who are the Uyghurs and why do they matter? Why should they matter? Well, they're one of the 56 ethnic groups officially recognized by the Chinese government, a mainly Muslim 
Turkic-speaking minority group who comprise less than 1% of the Chinese population, though they live in China's biggest province, Xinjiang, or East Turkestan, as many Uyghurs prefer to call it, especially those who support independence from China. Now, the Chinese government has been cracking down on the Uyghurs for decades. But post 9-11, Beijing took advantage of George Bush's so-called war on terror to brand all opposition to Chinese rule as evil Islamic terrorism of the Al-Qaeda variety. In recent years, they've gone much further and now seem to see all Uyghurs as potential terrorists, extremists. Separatists. The Chinese government is making no apologies for the way it's running Xinjiang. It has told the UN that there's been a major crackdown there in order to rein in violent Islamic extremism and those who would separate Xinjiang from the rest of China. Beijing has banned Uyghur parents from naming their sons Muhammad, blocked their children from entering mosques, forbade Uyghur government employees from fasting during Ramadan. Uyghur Muslim men are prohibited from growing, quote, abnormally long beards, while Uyghur Muslim women cannot wear the face veil in public. But you might say, well, that's the kind of garden variety Islamophobia that we're seeing growing even in some European states. The Chinese, though, have taken it to new and horrifying levels. A panel of UN investigators said last year that up to a million Uyghur Muslims may have been detained in what are basically massive concentration camps in Xinjiang. Earlier this year, the State Department said the true number might be closer to 3 million. To put that in context, the Uyghur population of Xinjiang is around 11 million people. So anywhere between 1 in 10 and 1 in 4 of the total Uyghur population in that province is being detained against their will, kept in camps, imprisoned. That's an astonishing number of people, both as an absolute number and as a proportion of their population. And those who have been released, those who have fled the country, say that in those camps, Uyghur Muslims are being not just forcibly brainwashed to love President Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party and hate Islam, but also starved, sterilized, tortured, raped, and yes, killed. And look, it's not just life in the camps that's so brutal and intolerable and like nothing we've seen before in the modern era. It's also life outside of the camps, across Xinjiang, a province which has been turned in recent years into a kind of dystopian police state. Earlier this year, the New York Times reported that the Chinese authorities are using a vast secret system of advanced facial recognition technology to track and control the Uyghurs, as they move around, go to work, go to school. The Times called it, quote, the first known example of a government intentionally using artificial intelligence for racial profiling. Racial profiling of an entire people in a province. And that's outside their homes. Inside of their homes, as Human Rights Watch documented last year, they have had to deal with Communist Party snoopers from the Han Chinese majority community who have been sent to stay in Uyghur homes and monitor them. Imagine that. Just imagine men from the government coming to stay in your home, to live in your house 24-7, to watch you and your family talk, eat, pray. It's almost beyond belief. But it's happening in the world right now in Xinjiang, China. The authorities say the camps are for combating violent religious extremism. Now, some Uyghur parents speaking in exile have told the BBC that as well as losing adult relatives, their children too have disappeared and they are not being told where they're held. 
And though the Chinese deny it and deny the camps and deny the repression, a recent and pretty unprecedented leak of government papers from the Communist Party to the New York Times, dubbed the China Cables, confirm both that the president of China himself has called for the showing of, quote, no mercy against the Uyghurs, and that one senior Communist Party official in Xinjiang tried to stop some of these repressive measures against the Uyghurs, and he failed. He himself was imprisoned. This is a document the world was never supposed to see. Instructions on how to run a detention camp. The documents show the Chinese government officials designed the camps as brainwashing centers on a massive scale. China says there's nothing to worry about. The camps are just for training. Here's the thing to remember, though. The Chinese government isn't just powerful at home. It's powerful abroad. Its economic clout and sheer size means that governments, including Western governments, can't or won't do much to help the Uyghurs. I mean, there's the occasional protest or stern letter. In July, for example, 22 nations, including the UK and France and Canada, signed a letter addressed to the UN calling on China to end its massive detention program in Xinjiang. Last month, the United States Congress passed an act restricting the sale of surveillance technology to Beijing and bringing in sanctions against Chinese officials involved in locking up Uyghurs. And to be fair, even the usually Islamophobic Trump administration has taken a strong line against the repression of the Uyghurs. Here's Secretary of State Mike Pompeo speaking over the summer. China is home to one of the worst human rights crises of our time. It is truly the stain of the century. Though, of course, the Trump administration doesn't like China already because of the trade war. And so be under no illusion. The moment Trump signs some sort of trade agreement with China and the trade war with Beijing ends... His administration, I suspect, will stop saying anything or giving a damn about the Uyghurs. But look, it's easy to slam Trump or the US or the West for not doing enough here. But as a Muslim, it is deeply depressing to me to see the countries of the Muslim-majority world not just silent on this looming genocide against the Uyghurs in China, but actually coming out publicly and backing the Chinese government. Yeah, backing it. Just a few days after those 22 Western nations published their anti-China letter in July, 37 other nations put out a pro-China letter, saying that because of the, quote, grave challenge of terrorism and extremism, China has undertaken a series of counter-terrorism and de-radicalization measures, including setting up vocational education and training centers. Vocational education and training centers. My God. In fact, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, went to Beijing earlier this year and said it was China's right. It's right to put Muslims in camps for anti-terror purposes. Thank you, MBS. Earlier this month, I interviewed the Pakistani human rights minister, Shirin Mazari, on my Al Jazeera English show up front. I asked her, as the human rights minister, whether she would condemn the horrific mistreatment and mass incarceration of her fellow Muslims, the Uyghurs, at the hands of the Chinese. Pakistan happens to be a close ally of China, dependent on Chinese investment and money. Here's how that exchange went down. We talk to the Chinese government. When we get evidence, we take it up. But China is an ally of ours and we will not go screaming on the streets about it. So, so have you condemned them privately? That, have you condemned them privately? I think that our government has been speaking to the Chinese, hearing their point of view, giving our position. What is their point of view when it comes to locking up millions of your fellow Muslims? That's what you're saying, that they're locking up millions of fellow Muslims. Are you saying they're not? 
I am saying that there may be cases and we have taken it up with the Chinese. That's how we deal with our allies. So who's going to speak up for the Uyghurs, either in the West or in the Muslim majority world? Are we really going to all just sit back and watch a cultural genocide in which the Chinese government tries to wipe out Uyghur culture, faith, history, heritage? Are we going to watch that unfold in front of our eyes? Watch millions of innocent people rounded up and put into camps? Or is there anything that can be done to help what is now one of the world's most repressed minority communities? Why were people shocked when Trump went through with his campaign promise of the Muslim ban? Nobody should have been surprised or shocked. So what does it say about those who were surprised and shocked by his Muslim ban when it was a campaign promise and was actually put into effect? Did his critics simply not believe he would go through with his promise that it was just hyperbole? Well, what I think is even more revealing is that people were surprised that he pledged the ban in the first place, but he pledged and went through with it when Islamophobia, Trump did not invent official Islamophobia. The, the the story with Islamophobia, I mean, there's a longer story that has to do with anti-immigrant politics in general and Orientalism, the way that people in the West think about people in the Middle East, Arabs, Muslims uh, in, in general. But then there's also this very proximate history that begins with the war on terror launched by George W. Bush and his bipartisan enablers after 9-11. And the neocons launched that war with these lofty utopian promises that this is not a war against Muslim and Arab people, but to liberate them. And remarkably, that framing holds fast with the American public initially. Republican favorability towards Muslims, and this is going to shock people, skyrockets after 9-11. Republicans become remarkably more favorable to Muslims after 9-11 because they believe what Bush is saying, which is that this is a war for uh, Muslim freedom. Of course, at the same time, like George Bush is launching wars all over the so-called Muslim world and bringing the, the power of the national securities, domestic national security state against Muslims inside the United States. And what happens is, is when the war on terror becomes an obvious disaster and loses public support, people, many people turning against the war also turn against Muslims. And so very beginning in the mid 2000s, Islamophobic sentiment and activism skyrockets. And so the Islamophobia that characterizes that is so core to the Trump administration was so core to his campaign has its roots very much in George W. Bush's war on terror and everyone, every politician who played a role in facilitating that. You write that when the Muslim ban was enacted, protesters flooded into airports, lawyers rushed to court to file emergency motions, and Trump was swiftly dealt the first in a series of defeats as judges around the country put the ban on hold. It demonstrated liberal swooned, the importance and resilience of institutions and the rule of law, at least until June 2018, when the Supreme Court voted to uphold the third version of his executive order, which narrowed the ban but made it indefinite, concluding that Trump's unambiguous bigotry had been duly laundered by way of bureaucratic procedure. Were liberals naive to have faith in the importance and resilience of institutions and the rule of law? And if so, what does it tell you? What does it reveal to you? What does it say to you about liberals and liberalism? 
Yeah, well, you know, I, I definitely there's there's no shade intended to the many you know incredible civil rights and civil liberties lawyer who've been out there fighting the Trump administration in court every day since his election. They're doing incredibly important work, and they have, for example, uh, held up his attempt to eliminate DACA, a protection for young immigrants who came to this country as children, and that's extremely laudable, critical work. But the political faith that many liberals have placed in institutions and the law is incredibly misplaced because those institutions are not only deeply politicized, but they've been deeply politicized as part of the war on immigrants. I mean, especially since the 1990s when we had Bill Clinton in response to right, surging white, right-wing anti-immigrant sentiment in the 1990s pass a number of laws that tied our immigration enforcement system to our criminal justice system. Uh, by the time that the Obama administration came around, uh, he had this program called Secure Communities that made every police station and sheriff's office and jail in this country a front door to the deportation pipeline. So the war on immigrants was actually embedded in our criminal justice institutions, in our legal institutions. So believing that something aside from politics could solve this problem is a big mistake. And I think that is uh, reveals a, a basic failing in terms of like liberal proceduralism and the belief that institutions can save us. When in fact, what can save us is organizing a, 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 a multiracial immigrant-centered working class coalition to defeat a far right that uses that uses division to advance a politics of reaction and, and in support of the oligarchy. This election season, go deep, direct, and unfiltered. C-SPAN's Campaign 2020 differs from other political coverage for one simple reason. It's C-SPAN. C-SPAN brings you an unfiltered view of politics so you can see the biggest picture for yourself and make up your own mind. On C-SPAN, you'll find in-depth, uninterrupted coverage of the candidates, the issues, and the events that are steering us to Election Day. Follow the campaigns and watch the town halls, rallies, and more live as they happen on C-SPAN. Then dig even deeper and search the candidates' positions over the years using C-SPAN's online archive with more than 250,000 hours of video. Get an unfiltered view of politics with C-SPAN's Campaign 2020 on the C-SPAN television networks, on the C-SPAN app, or online at c-span.org. All brought to you as a public service by your television provider. Make up your own mind with C-SPAN's Campaign 2020. Let's talk about Burma and the Rohingya in Burma. Um, and in particular, I want to talk about this one because there are a lot of things that happen in the world that are grim and horrifying. And few of them are as dispiriting as what's happened there with a Nobel Peace Prize winner who is understood as a great hero of humanitarianism, uh, becoming the prime minister and becoming functionally an apologist for a genocide. And that interacting, by the way, with I'm talking to you from San Francisco um, with the with Facebook becoming the platform for a genocide, um, an American company, super rich. Everybody's stock is vesting. It's all great. But somewhere else, uh, the harm it's doing is arguably far, far greater than the good it has ever done. So just tell me about the, the big picture of what's happened to the Rohingya. 
So the Rohingya Muslims are a minority in Myanmar or Burma, uh, residents of Rakhine State. They have been subjected to violent attacks by the military there since 2011, 2012, but they've been discriminated against in a kind of almost South African apartheid-style way since 1982, when uh, the Burmese government, the military junta at the time, passed a citizenship law that recognized eight races, Ezra, and 130 minority groups. Think about that. Eight races, 130 official minority groups, yet somehow they couldn't find any space to recognize a million Rohingya Muslims because the Burmese see them, the Burmese government see them as interlopers, as foreign uh, refugees, uh, migrants who have come from Bangladesh. They're dismissed as Bengalis uh, who have come from next door even though they have roots in the country going back centuries. And in fact, in Burma, you can't even say the word Rohingya. Aung San Suu Kyi, this Nobel Peace Laureate who's become an apologist and enabler for genocide, um, and who even turned up at the International uh, Court of Justice in The Hague uh, just a few weeks ago to defend her country against charges of genocide, um, she asked the US government not to use the word Rohingya in any of its official documents or meetings. That's how much part she is of this discriminatory state-sponsored system which treats the Rohingya as lesser people. They're denied access to employment, education, healthcare. Uh, they had to get permission to marry. Uh, they were subjected to a discriminatory two-child policy. And then in 2017, the military take it to the next level. You'll notice a common theme here running through, Ezra. Indian Muslims, they were discriminated against before, but it escalated in the last couple of years. Uyghurs have been discriminated against a while, but it's escalated in the last couple of years. Rohingya, discriminated against for a while, but in 2017, it goes up to the next level where the Burmese military come into Rakhine State in Western Myanmar. They launch this campaign of unspeakable terror and violence. Crimes that are, you read about this stuff and you cannot believe what you're reading, that this is happening in the present day. Men hacked to death. Children literally burned alive. Women, young girls raped, sexually assaulted. 700,000 Rohingya, conservative estimate driven from their homes. Uh, tens of thousands killed. The US State Department has called it ethnic cleansing. The UN, uh, a fact-finding commission by the UN, accused the Burmese military of genocide. The US Holocaust Memorial Museum in DC sent a team to investigate and said, yes, this is genocide. When we say never again, no, it's happening again. And this has happened in front of us in a country that most of us know very little about to a group that most of us know very little about and led by a woman who we all know as this great champion of human rights. But turns out she was never really a champion of human rights, Aung San Suu Kyi. She was actually a Buddhist nationalist and a racist like a lot of the other people who run uh, Myanmar. I have two questions on this. So one, I, I think that if you know Buddhism in America and it's sort of American, Northern Californian, mindfulness, semi-secular variants, right, Richard Gere, I think people don't always realize that there is actually like Buddhist ethnic groups, Buddhist nationalists um, who do terrible, terrible things. And for her to be one of them, I think, is one of the great uh, horrors of, of this age. Let me ask you, when she went to the International Criminal Court and she defended um, Burma against charges of genocide, how does Aung San Suu Kyi defend what is happening under her watch? Uh, their defense is very simple. Their defense is uh, twofold. Uh, number one, we're fighting terrorism. There you go again. Terrorism. Uh, everyone wants to jump on the terrorism bandwagon. We are fighting terrorists. The Rohingya groups are terrorist groups, and that's all we're doing. And number two, the reports of everything else is, quote unquote, 
fake news. Oh, heard that phrase before as well. Notice both arguments based on two US presidents, the terrorism argument from George W. Bush, the fake news argument from Donald J. Trump. And that's basically all they have. In fact, her office, Aung San Suu Kyi's office, when there were reports of mass rape going on in Rakhine, they put a headline on their website, on the official Burmese government website, on her personal office's website. And in capital letters, Ezra, it said, fake rape. In English, fake rape. They put up for the world's media uh, to see their response. She was once interviewed by a friend of mine at the BBC, uh, a Muslim uh, anchor, and after the interview was over, she didn't realize her mic, she was in a remote studio and Suchi didn't realize her mic was still on. And she turned to an aide and she said, you didn't tell me I had to be interviewed by a Muslim. So that's the kind of raw prejudice that this woman has, that a lot of the people in Burma have. You mentioned kind of Buddhism, as I would say about Muslims, the vast majority of Buddhists are very good people, are not violent, are not racists. But there are factions within every religion which politicize religion, uh, which use religion to discriminate against others, which see other religions as a threat. And there is a hardline, far-right-wing Buddhist nationalist movement. There's a guy called Wirathu in Myanmar. Uh, I think Time magazine put him on the cover a few years ago, called him the Burmese Bin Laden. And he's one of the kind of quote-unquote religious ideologues who's been pushing this Islamophobia in Myanmar against the Rohingya and other Muslim groups. And as you mentioned, Facebook has played a massive role in this. One of the questions you asked at the top is, you know, how is this happening? What are the consequences? Facebook, social media plays a massive role in why so much of this is happening now. In Myanmar, in 2018, the chair of the UN fact-finding mission said that Facebook played a, quote, determining role in the violence. Think about that, something we use just for fun, to connect to your friends, to share videos, make money off of, as you pointed out, played a determining role in a genocide because it helped spread hatred, conspiracy theories, incitement to violence, quote-unquote fake news. Um, it helped the demonization of a minority group in Myanmar. So let, let me ask about this because I think to the extent people have heard about what's happening in Myanmar, what they've heard is that it is like the Facebook genocide. It's also happening through WhatsApp and Twitter and other things, but it's been, it's been tied very much to Facebook. But one of the big questions that is lurking over this conversation we're having and that I was going to get to to some degree at the end is why so much of this in so many different places now? And one of at least hypotheses I've heard is that it actually is about social media, social media, which is an endless generator of identity, social media where the slingshot to virality is conflict between identity groups. Uh, Modi famously is the I believe he's a politician with the most uh, Facebook followers in the entire world. He's beyond Donald Trump, beyond Barack Obama. Um, we're going to talk about Brexit and uh, America, but these are these are heavily social media fied political systems now. And uh, anti-Muslim bigotry is very, very viral, and it is not policed um, to the extent that these platforms police things like white nationalism, which they do a little bit more now than they did. They very much don't on anti-Muslim bigotry. How much do you think the argument that the reason we are seeing this in so many places right now is actually because social media has been a lit match on the gasoline that was already sitting there in this conversation is true. A hundred percent. I'm a believer in that. I wrote a piece for The Intercept recently, which was an open letter to Mark Zuckerberg, making this point that we're, what we're talking about right now, which is when you go around the world, when you go to India 
and you see that Facebook has played a massive role. Uh, I think Avaz, the activist group, has called Facebook in India a megaphone for hate against Muslims in Assam. I believe Islamophobic content is the biggest source of hate speech on Facebook in India. Uh, in Myanmar, the UN said it had a determining role. Uh, the UN Special Rapporteur has said that everything is done through Facebook in Myanmar uh, when it comes to all of this violence and hate. When you go to Sri Lanka, where there's been anti-Muslim violence. Sri Lanka is a place where there's been massive anti-Muslim hatred on Facebook. And then you go to the West, you go to the US, you go to the UK, you see the same thing. And you know, okay, correlation is not causation, but it's a pretty big hint, as the old saying goes. And I can't believe that in all these countries where it's so ramped up in recent years, they have high degrees of social media, especially Facebook penetration. And you're seeing that as a way of people coming together, especially people, um, you know, WhatsApp in India is massive phenomenon there. You can't blame it all on social media. Obviously, people are to blame for the acts of violence they commit. But if you want to talk about why now, I do believe it is a perfect storm. We talked earlier about, you know, the end of the Cold War in the 90s. You see Islam being the green threat from that New York Times headline at 9-11 and you're the war on terror uh, gives you that militarized dimension where George W. Bush creates the entire infrastructure for both domestic and foreign uh, Islamophobia. Uh, and then now, post-Trump and the, the rise of nativist politicians, which is partly to do with Islamophobia, but is also driven by multiple other factors, both uh, social and economic and stuff you've talked about on your show and I've talked about on my show. Um, that is also comes into play. So you have multiple factors all coming together in a kind of perfect storm in recent years. And the last thing, and social media then gives it that kind of escalating impact. And then the main point, and my friend Todd Green, uh, the academic uh, who advised the State Department on Islamophobia, he's written a great book on, on, on the fear of Islam. He makes the point, the reason Islamophobia is everywhere now is very simple. It works, right? Why wouldn't it be everywhere when wherever it's been tried, it works? It worked for Donald Trump. It worked for the people pushing Brexit. That is a horrifying and true statement. Indeed. U.S. elite media aren't in the habit of highlighting protest in formally friendly countries, but hundreds of thousands of people in the street throughout India should be hard to ignore. The peaceful protests have been met with brutality. At least 27 people have been killed. What is behind the unrest? Historian and journalist Vijay Prashad is chief correspondent at Globetrotter, a project of the Independent Media Institute, chief editor of Left Word Books, and the director of Tricontinent. Institute for Social Research. His most recent book is Red Star Over the Third World. He joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Vijay Prashad. Great to be with you. Well, maybe we could start with what's being described as the flashpoint, the Citizenship Amendment Act. CNN International used that quintessential media technique saying protesters, quote, oppose a new citizenship law that they say discriminates against Muslims, close quote. And the New York Times described the law as contentious. What does the CAA seem to do? And what is the context? How does it fit with the project, if you will, of Prime Minister Narendra Modi? I mean, this Citizenship Amendment Act is essentially the last straw for particularly uh, young people, peasants, workers, and so on. You know, the tolerance is gone now. I mean, I, I, it's, I'm having a hard time saying this because I want to emphasize 
that this protest is extraordinarily disobedient. People just have no faith in the government any longer. And this bill itself, if you look at it by itself, it shouldn't have tipped the scales, but it was literally the last straw. The bill itself is quite clear. It's about refugees, people who are facing religious intolerance in South Asia. Now, India is a signatory to various international treaties. And if only India you know, ratified those treaties, there would be no need for uh, this kind of bill. But this bill is not about refugees. It's doing something else. What the bill actually says is that religious minorities in the region are welcome into India. So Christians, Hindus, Buddhists, and so on can come into India. It explicitly doesn't say that Muslims from the neighborhood can come into India. Even persecuted people like the Rohingyas in Burma or the Hazaras in Afghanistan or the Ahmadis in Pakistan, they cannot come in. And so it doesn't actually say that Indian Muslims are second-class citizens. It says that everybody but a Muslim has the right to come into India if they're religiously persecuted. This really annoyed a lot of people because it sort of takes India down the road of saying that Muslims are not integral to the Indian fabric. And I just want to say that it's a totally impracticable policy to say that Indian Muslims are not part of India. There are 200 million Indian Muslims. If Indian Muslims had their own country, it would be the eighth largest country in the world. You know, it's the same population as Nigeria. There's no way to put 200 million people into a concentration camp. There's no way to deport 200 million people. This is entirely about fear-mongering, about making a very large number of Indians feel that they are second-class citizens. And I think this is what tipped the scale and sent people into very disobedient protests Protests that totally disrespect this government, laughing at the government, making jokes at the government, having no sense that this government is real, as it were. And the protests have been diverse. I mean, as you, they've, they've brought together ranges of people and across sectors. Is, isn't that true? It's almost everyone, I think you said somewhere, everyone but the BJP is almost out in the street. Yes, quite right. Initially, of course, these were protests led by students, I should say, because students have been fighting against the raise of fees in public universities. They've been fighting against unreasonable kinds of programs being set up inside colleges. For instance, the study of the supernatural and ghosts, the study of the healing powers of cow urine and so on. This has really bothered students, you know, and they've been out on the streets for the last year uh, fighting very almost a lonely action against the government. So students began the protest, but the student protest brought millions, hundreds of millions of people onto the street. I was in a protest in Calcutta. There must have been 50,000 people there, students in the lead, but then there were intellectuals, there were peasants, there were workers, and so on. All this culminated in attacks by the government on several public universities where students were demonstrating against the Citizenship Amendment Act. These attacks were so vicious that they brought even more people onto the street. You know, governments calculate repression in such a way that they feel if they can repress protests, it scares people. They don't come to the streets. But I want to emphasize this disobedience aspect 
despite the crackdown, despite the repression, more and more people have been coming on the street. Poets have been writing new poetry. And on January 8th, uh, over 200 million Indians went on a general strike. This was a strike that had been planned previously by the trade unions, by the peasant organizations and so on. But they wrapped their own struggle into the struggle against the Citizenship Amendment Act. And you had probably the world's largest strike in history. Last year, there were 180 million workers and peasants on strike. This year, it's about 200 million. It was an extraordinary, extraordinary event across India. Now, do you think that Modi and the BJP are taken aback, were surprised by the scale and the vitality of the protest, particularly as they are, as you say, so disobedient, so, you know, um, dangerous? I think they have miscalculated, and I think they don't know what the exit is. Uh, One of the things, the features of the far right, uh, particularly the Indian far right, is that when they came to power this time, that is, in this cycle, in 2014 onward, when they came to power, they thought, our time has come, we're going to push the whole of our agenda. We're not going to modulate our agenda. We're not going to compromise. We're going to go all the way. We're going to push for a full capitalist agenda because they are the only party completely committed to the so-called IMF reform slate, including labor market reforms, which is basically eviscerating trade unions and so on. That was one plank of their agenda. The second plank of their agenda was this social toxicity, which includes a very firm anti-Muslim agenda. And they just decided, no compromise, we are in power, our time has come, we're going for it. And I think this pushback has surprised them. They've miscalculated. But because of their sense that we've got to go all the way on our agenda, they're not going to back down. You know, they have a mandate. They control parliament. They don't feel like they need to apologize to anybody. Now, the real question is how much repression, how much state violence are they willing to put against the protesters? And how much will the world, in a way, or even Indians tolerate What level of state violence is going to be seen as tolerable? Because these protests are not going anywhere. People are blocking streets in a part of Delhi known as Shaheen Bagh. There are entire families sitting on a major roadway. They've blocked it for several weeks now. So what will be the level of violence that the government is going to use against the protesters? And what will India tolerate before there is just a mass insurrection against the government? If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies. Owned by the richest dude in the world. That one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to. But if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time.
This legislation, Modi's government, the politics, the RSS, sort of fit into a global pattern. You know, we've got Bolsonaro in Brazil, we've got Trump in the United States, you know, uh, Orban in Hungary. Yeah. Erdogan in Turkey. Yeah, there's yeah. global authoritarian, xenophobic, um, uh, uh, fundamentalist kinds of politics. What's your understanding? Why is this happening? Do you have any thoughts on just you know how how the the Modi phenomenon fits into the larger global picture? I think anybody who sort of claims to be a thinker these days is thinking about you know what what do these groups have in common? Why are they taking place at the same at the same time? There are a couple of thoughts I have. You know, one is sort of the very obvious reason that people point out, which is rising inequality, right? Uh, rising aspirations meets rising inequality. And governments are less able to deliver because the way in which global economies are structured. And so it's easier to appeal to identity politics than to actually uh, make an intervention into national economies and national politics and things like that. So, I mean, that's certainly one reason. It's true as far as it goes. But I also think there's the politics of influence, which is to say, if right-wing groups do well in one country, other right-wing uh, parties in other countries take heart from that and try to imitate their methods. And unfortunately, one of the methods that is being used by right-wing parties everywhere is appealing to these sectarian or ethnic divisions and uh, trying to sort of mobilize people against different groups of outsiders or those who are perceived to be outsiders. And these vary from country to country. You know, it could be Jews in one country. It could be um, gypsies in another country. It could be refugees in a third country. And it's Muslims in a lot of countries. So um, I think uh, certainly there's a sort of method to this madness that uh, right-wing parties are tapping into. Sort of uh, the international of nationalists. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And they're learning from each other. They are learning from each other, and I think social media is certainly a part of that. I want to emphasize something you said in there because I think it's really important to understanding politics in this era. Um, there have been a bunch of studies. Shadi Hamid did one, but 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 others have done many, showing that the driver of far-right populist, populist parties um, in the U.S. and in Western Europe is immigration. These parties, they happen in times when the economy is good and they happen in times when the economy is bad. They happen under very different situations with social services and how many social supports the country has. They happen in places where there are opioid crises and in places where there are not opioid crises. But the thing that is always a very primary motivator of them is immigration. And in all of them, one of the key ways immigration is weaponized into fear is Muslim immigration. Uh, and this had a very, again, a somewhat farcical version in the 2018 election in America, where Donald Trump began trying to freak people out about this caravan coming up from, um, from Central America. And when it wasn't working that well, he began to say, and, and, and others around him said, well, we don't know. There could be jihadists in this. Yep. 
Middle yeah. Easterners in the yeah, caravan. Middle Easterners in the remember caravan. They they, remember they said, we found a prayer rug near the border. Do you mm-hmm. remember that? That was a classic and, one. And so, I mean, this was a public thing. Like, reporters were there. Like, the caravan was public. They were coming to turn themselves in legally and ask for asylum. And when they really needed to turn up the fear, what they said was not that this is full of Central Americans who are fleeing gang violence and economic despair. What they said is, as you say, there might have been a prayer rug nearby. Maybe there are jihadists in here. Maybe there are Middle Easterners in here. And then in Europe, this has been much more salient because you've had much more direct uh, Muslim immigration from the Syrian refugee crisis and, and, and other things. I think that when people hear immigration, they code it, particularly in America, um, even when you're hearing it for other places, they code it the way we think of it here. Uh, immigration is an economic issue, immigration as, you know, Mexicans coming in, but it's often um, – Particularly in Europe, the immigration issue isn't actually a Muslim issue. It's a, it's about protecting your country from Muslim in, invasion and inversion, right? That the, this whole idea that these countries are going to become filled with Sharia law. Well, there was a very famous um, French book a couple of years ago imagining a France that had become uh, like a, basically a, like a like a Muslim superstate. There's a lot of fevered imagining around this. Uh, you mentioned the horrifying manifesto of of the shooter. All of that stuff relies on this idea of replacement birth rates. Um, that, those were the first words of his thing. Um, if you go back to Pat Buchanan's book from a couple of years ago, um, I'm unfortunately right now blanking on the name of it, but it, you, it, it's had a comeback recently because it basically, it's like a smart version of Trumpism. It's like a thoughtful version of Trumpism, but it's very racist and it's all about replacement birth rates. This idea that the Muslim world is going to outbirth the Western world, and then it's going to send all of its people in through immigration, and that's going to take over these places and turn them into Muslim states. And the problem, of course, is that this is something, again, it's easy just to blame it on the far right. And yes, it is true. Today, the animating force that unites a lot of these far right parties, whether you're the French National Front or the UK Independence Party or the Danish People's Party or the Finns Party or the Swedish Democrats or the Vox Party in Spain or the Northern League in Italy. No relationship, to be clear. No relationship to you (laughs) and your website. Uh, Or the Northern League in Italy or uh, the Orban government in Hungary. Definitely, it's Islamophobia and targeting Muslim immigrants in particular, which brings them together in a way that anti-Semitism used to bring them together. What far-right parties realized a while ago, the smarter ones, maybe not Golden Dawn in Greece, but the savvier ones like Marine Le Pen in in France, who got rid of her dad, the anti-Semite, they realize that anti-Semitism doesn't work anymore. It's it's still a taboo in most parts of the Western world. Not all of them, but still is. Whereas anti-Muslim hatred, well, that's respectable racism. You can get mainstream support for that. The media is already doing it. It's already an open market there. Um, you know, when Donald Trump came down the escalator and did what he did and said the Muslim ban, he was speaking to a, an audience that was primed for this stuff as our far-right European groups. So they decided to substitute. They've said this. Nick Griffin, who was the leader of the British National Party and neo-Nazi party in the UK, he said this openly. He said, let's stop talking about Jews. Let's talk about Muslims. Much easier to attack Muslims. So they've coalesced around Islamophobia. Logically, it works, sadly. Um, Marine Le Pen managed to become, you know, come second in the presidential election, astonishingly, uh, not long ago, thanks to Islamophobia. But you can't just say it's all about the far right. You then have to take a step back and say, when you, especially when you talk about like Syrian refugees and immigration, um, and one thing I would, very briefly, I would slightly push back against, I don't believe it's immigration that drives these parties. Because, like, for example, in Hungary, there are no immigrants. In Poland, there are no. It's a perception of uncontrolled immigration. Yes, I think, that, I think that is a fair, a fair correction. Raw there. numbers on the ground. It's not people, you know, there's this myth that liberals push through that, oh, if you see your community changed, you react badly. Well, a lot of these people live in communities where there are no immigrants. Um, 
Poland being a classic example. I interviewed a MP on my Al Jazeera English show recently, uh, Dominic Tarczynski, who's become a hero of the kind of MAGA right. Um, and he's an MP and an MEP with the Law and Justice Party. He was very open about it on the show. It's one of the most astonishing interviews I've done. My jaw was literally dropping. and It doesn't drop very often because I interview a lot of weird people. But he was openly saying, you know, we don't want any Muslims coming to Poland. We don't want any Muslims because they're going to blow themselves up and we don't want Sharia law. This is a, a member of the governing party in Poland in 2019 saying this stuff openly, proudly, without any coded language. Um, and this has been enabled, I'm sorry to say, by mainstream politicians, both on the centre-right and the centre-left. You know, we could talk about Marine Le Pen, but it was Nicolas Sarkozy when he was running for re-election who said, and I quote, halal meat is the number one issue facing France. He said that with a straight face, that halal meat is the number one issue facing the French people because he knew that's what, how you get what, support. What was the next sentence he said? I don't know. Not that you literally know, but I mean, what was his actual argument there? Oh, his argument was that the secular fabric of French society is being destroyed by Muslims who won't integrate and it's changing our way of life. And that's what the meat issue is. That's why Muslim kids are in some schools are being told you have to eat pork or nothing else. Um, and then you had in Britain, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, who were not kind of card-carrying racists, but to go back to what we talked about earlier in the context of George W. Bush, did create an entire infrastructure of surveillance, security, um, uh, criticizing immigration, which did feed into Islamophobic tropes and did make people more afraid of, of foreigners. And Angela Merkel, who did a great thing by letting in a million Syrians, but years earlier, she gave a big speech saying multiculturalism has failed in Germany, which was code for too many Turks here. Um, this is across the board, Western politics, even in the U.S., even in the US, Ezra, where Donald Trump 2016 is running the most Islamophobic campaign in modern American history, Bill Clinton, well-intentioned, I'll give him that, well-intentioned, turns up at the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia and he gives a speech and he says in that speech to the crowd, if you're a Muslim and you love America and freedom and you hate terror, stay here and help us win and make a future together. We want you. An astonishing line. For any Muslim listening to that, number one, the condition, if you love America, if you're Muslim, conditional. Number two, you should only stay here if you want to fight terrorism. Uh, my daughter is a Muslim American. She has no role to play in the war on terror. She's supposed to leave. Uh, number three, who is Bill Clinton to decide who stays or goes? And this line, we want you. Do you notice that? He's, he's, he, I'm sure he has the best of intentions, but he's othering automatically. We, the non-Muslims, you, the Muslims. Our guests. Right. It's an it's an othering wrapped in language of inclusion. Indeed. And and you know, you saw that, you've seen that, you know, Barack Obama's refusal to go to a mosque for eight years because he was worried about being betrayed a Muslim. He waited till his eighth year in office to step foot in a mosque. Um you saw Actually, that with it, liberals. I want to note though, that's something we haven't talked about here, and I, I you just jogged my memory on it, but a constant refrain against Barack yes. Obama. Secret the, Muslim like, president. That was that he was a secret Muslim. I mean, it, it was an One interesting thing. One in four thing. Americans believe that, Ezra, till and, the day he left office. And a majority of the Republicans believed it for, yes. at least in some polls, for some time. But the fact that that was where this went, right? I mean, people thought, well, you know, when he ran, America won't accept an African-American president. Turns out they did. And so then the secondary decision had to be made. Well, maybe what they won't accept is a Muslim president, and maybe we can say that he's Muslim. Maybe that is the way to correctly... We can remind people of his correctly... middle name, which Trump did recently. Uh, you'll notice he brought back the Barack Hussein Obama. Here's my favorite stat, which I actually found in a Vox article a few years ago um, from Phil Klinkner, the political scientist, who said that the number one way of identifying a Trump voter, a white Trump voter in 2016, uh, more than party ID, more than class, more than educational background, was whether they believed Barack Obama was Muslim or not. And Trump was specifically the leader of the birther conspiracy theory. Indeed. 
I mean, that was that was the water he tested. But the, qu- when he was but the question up. is, Ezra, is to come back again. And I, I keep bringing this back to because I know your listeners are not Trump supporters by and large. And I do think there's a role for all of us to recognize it's easy to bash Trump. It's easy to bash Fox. It's easy to bash the Daily Mail and the far right in Europe. But we have to talk about how it's become normalized. Why is it a respectable racism? How did it pass the dinner table test? What have liberals and leftists done to push back against this bigotry, which has now you know, resulted in concentration camps in China and maybe future concentration camps in India and a Muslim ban here in the US. Has there been enough pushback, A, against the Republicans who push this crap? Has there been enough pushback against liberals in our midst, like the Bill Mars and Sam Harris's, who say outrageous things? You know, you talk about replacement theory. Sam Harris was fear-mongering about Muslims, uh, uh, um, Muslim numbers and demographics in France years ago, which he only recently re- uh, very reluctantly apologized for. This idea of Eurabia, of Muslims taking, of Arabs taking over Europe. What have we done to push back against them in our midst? And where have we been when, you know, when this stuff has raised its head? Have we have we turned a blind eye? Obama, as I said, didn't go to a mosque, which I think was a big mistake. Not only that, you know, when he was accused of being Muslim, he put it in like, I think there was an Obama campaign website, which had it in a list of kind of smears, like being called a Muslim. It was almost accepting the terms of debate. And I think Colin Powell, of all people, said it best back in 2008 on Meet the Press. He said, Obama is not a Muslim. But saying that is not enough. You have to go further and say, so what if he was a Muslim? Why would that be a problem? We've just heard clips today, starting with the Ezra Klein show, explaining the bandwagon effect of our war on terror. Deconstructed laid out the details on the human rights abuses being waged against the Chinese Uyghurs. This is Hell discussed Trump's naked Islamophobia and the roots it grew from. The Ezra Klein show continued their discussion with the attacks on the Rohingya people in Myanmar, as well as the role of social media in fanning the flames of bigotry. Counterspin looked at the new Indian citizenship law that sparked protests against the anti-Muslim policy. Jacobin Radio discussed the emerging global pattern and the reasons for it. And finally, we just heard the Ezra Klein show once again discussing how Islamophobia became normalized in the U.S. as the acceptable bigotry and the fact that the left did too little to combat it while it was on the rise. Members will be hearing details about what's going on in China and India, including the history of India's President Modi and his far-right party. To hear that and all of our bonus content, which also includes more voicemails and plenty of extra commentary from me, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now, we'll hear from you. Jay, let me just congratulate you on a really wonderful podcast. That was so well put together and so well thought out, and I certainly learned a lot from it, and I'm certainly going to listen again. I um, only wanted to add one thing and maybe just correct one little thing. Um, I was very inspired by the story of both the Mijans family who, after going through such a terrible thing where basically a home invader shot their law-abiding brother and son to death, you know, flip the races on that and imagine how everybody would have felt and, and what and how that all would have happened. So it's right that Amber Geiger went to jail because she raised her gun and shot and killed somebody. But 
I think it's very wrong for anybody to judge the forgiveness that Botham Jean's brother offered to Amber after she took the consequences for her crime. That was his forgiveness. It was his loss. And for someone to say that they, to undercut that forgiveness is wrong. That's their grief and their burden and how they choose to bear it should be respected and not second-guessed and not judged. That's how I feel about that. The only thing I'd have to add to that is that there was some discussion of um, whether or not you have to be nice in the face of oppression. Um, and niceness was thought of as an option like or the only option to um, fighting back or being angry. You know, there's a much better option in between niceness and anger. I think of niceness as just avoiding friction. A niceness is what is doing what causes the least disruption in the moment. Maybe the right thing to do if peace in the moment is the true greatest good, but usually not. Kindness lies between niceness and anger or aggression. Kindness is doing what's right for everybody involved, and kindness often includes reproof. Kindness often includes struggle and fighting back against somebody. You know, and if you do it with love for everyone who needs love, including the aggressor, then you're still holding kindness in your heart when you're doing the right thing. That's all. Thanks, and I'm going to listen to this again because this is a lot of wisdom there. Thanks for putting it all together. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, I, I hope you agree. I think that the message we just heard was an interesting one. It gave me some things to think about and talk talk about uh, you know as you heard it was a, it's a two-part message the second part about kindness i thought was all just great and fine and i have nothing to add to that the first half though about cautioning against judging people when they are in the process of giving forgiveness i also think is pretty reasonable but deserves a second look because i think that there's more than one way to look at that which is where all the complicated feelings come from. So I think the caller, who I, I don't believe left his name, was coming very much from the individualistic perspective that when a person is in the process of grieving and uh, deciding whether to give forgiveness and on what terms and all of that, that that's a completely individual process no one can know exactly what it feels like to be that person and you shouldn't judge them f you know for their decisions and for what uh you know conclusions they come to and what they decide to do now through the individual lens that makes perfect sense and i would i would completely agree and in reality when we you know deal with people or or uh, you know actually have judgments about scenarios like this in in, in public news or public awareness that's a perfectly okay way to discuss it but one needs to understand the structural forces at play and if there is criticism to be given to ensure that those criticisms are directed squarely at the structural forces and i think that that's 
what people were talking about. So my, my interpretation of everything that was said about this case, the, the courtroom, the police officer, the murder, the forgiveness, all of it is that when criticism was given, it was directed at the structural forces at play. Now you can't blame this individual person for giving forgiveness, but you can understand the structural forces that would lead him to that conclusion and question those forces. And, and I think that's kind of what happens. So uh, let me, let me like try to explain what I mean in a different context. So, so let's, let's talk about, uh, the, the structural forces of politeness. Now, politeness, I think by definition is just social norms that acting politely is by definition to act within social norms. And, when we go through life and interact with other people, we are gently pushed in every interaction to act in certain pro-social ways. And those ways that we are gently nudged to act are by definition polite. So like, you know, I, I bump into someone on the street. If I say, oh, I'm sorry, then I am immediately seen as polite, maybe a little clumsy, but you know, I'm seen as a polite person and everyone says, Oh, no, no problem. Don't worry about it. But if I say nothing, I don't even have to say anything angry or, or rude, you know, overtly rude, but I could just say nothing and people would find it perfectly acceptable to give me a dirty look or make an angry comment or something like that because we have decided that it is rude to even accidentally bump into someone and then not say anything about it. You have to kind of apologize and ensure that they know that I didn't mean anything by it. So that you know, that's how politeness works, and that's how the structural forces of society help create and enforce those polite actions and the structures of polite society. So in that sense, I know what it feels like to experience structural pressure on my actions. My actions are guided by these structural forces, the, these little bits of reward and punishment. Someone saying, oh, no problem, don't worry about it, is it's a little reward for me that I know that no one's angry at me and that they, you know, give me a little smile and, you know, wave me off because I bumped them but apologized. And a little punishment if if someone decides that what I did was rude and they give me a dirty look or make an angry comment. That's a little punishment for me that I don't enjoy feeling. And, and, and so that's what guides my actions. That's structural pressure on a person's actions, but things get a lot more complicated when you add in an element like race. So I just explained that I can understand how structural pressure feels and I can intellectually understand what racial structural pressure is, but I cannot understand it on a personal level. I have never felt it, and I have uh, have no hope of ever feeling it, really. And, and the racial structural pressure comes from the phenomenon that, you know, if I, as a white guy, am rude to someone on the street— then I'm seen as a rude individual. But if you put a black person in my space and they bump into someone on the street and say nothing, then they are seen as a member of a group and that they are representing their group. And so then 
you never know what's in, in the hearts and minds of people, but, but what does happen for sure, at least, uh, you know, widely speaking, maybe not in every single person's mind is that they will see that exact same interaction and they will think not just that person is rude, but that black person is rude. I guess black people are rude. And, and that's the risk that the people run when they are members of usually minority communities who are judged by the, you know, majority or dominant community. And when they are judged as members of their groups and that those groups are judged as a group rather than people being judged individually. So when it comes to this case of murder and forgiveness, it opens up a case of not just structural forces about, I mean, going far beyond politeness, but about forgiveness and what forgiveness means and who deserves it and where the power comes from and all of that. And, and we could, we could say, we could argue that forgiveness is taught to everyone. We could say that generally speaking, everyone gets the message that forgiveness is good, it heals the soul, all of those sorts of things. However, it's not actually taught evenly. As we learned in the show, black people, especially black Christians, are taught sort of a much more strenuous version of the need to forgive. And white People, especially white Christians, are not taught that same lesson at the same level. And, and so, so first of all, there's a, there's a discrepancy between these two groups in how they are taught to act. And then when you dig deeper, you come to understand the structural forces of white supremacy and the efforts of white supremacy to perpetuate itself that helped create that social structure and those social pressures. And what I, what I think it basically comes down to is that white people are, well, first of all, white people are terrified of black people. They always have been, and they still are today. And so because they are afraid of black people, they will go out of their way to make black people's lives miserable to ensure that they can't ever gain enough power to rain vengeance down upon white people. I'm not saying that's what would happen. It almost certainly would not. And no indications I have ever seen uh, seem to point in that direction. But that is what white people are afraid of. And so they fear that if black people get power, then white people will suffer for it. So the way this has played out over time is that white people create these social norms, these social structures, which are very similar to the structures of politeness that say that black people, you know, like, you know, think uh, Jim Crow era, you know, black people can't speak impolitely to white people. They can't uh, speak to a white person without using sir or ma'am. They can't, uh, you know, speak to a white woman in a romantic way. You know, they, they, there's all these things they're not allowed to do. And if they do, they will be punished severely and possibly lynched. 
So, you know, that's Jim Crow era. And as you, you know, move forward, maybe the, the, the bounds grow a little bit. Black people are allowed to do a little bit more, but they still are not to the point where, you know, a, a black guy can run for president and not have a bunch of white people call him uppity. Like, we're just not there yet. So when the dominant culture of white society creates a structure like this and decides we are going to structurally enforce punishment upon any member of this community that steps out of line, the defense mechanism, and this was also addressed in the show, but the defense mechanism, the survival tactic for people of color is to be incredibly submissive and to demonstrate all the time in all the ways possible. I'm nice. I'm not a danger to you. Don't fear me. And that takes the form in just one case of many that takes the form of being taught in a systematic and structural way to be forgiving of white people for the harms that they cause, but to be forgiving just in general. And that is the structural force that's being criticized and questioned when a case like this comes up. And it doesn't mean necessarily that forgiveness is bad or wrong or that someone shouldn't forgive, but you should make sure that you're forgiving for the right reasons and understand that sometimes doing what's right for you as an individual, like forgiveness, is maybe perpetuating an oppressive structure where white people basically don't ever have to apologize for anything they've done. You know, do a quick search for uh, white, generally Republican politicians who go out of their way to say that I will never apologize for anything that, you know, I have done or my family's done or my country has done. Whether we were right or wrong, I will never apologize. This is a, like a famous recurring sort of thing. I'll never apologize for the United States of America. Ever. I don't care what the facts are. I will lead her. I will do my level best. Governor Mitt Romney. The president went about this all wrong. He went around the world and apologized for America. I will not and I will never apologize for America. A few minutes into office, he, he traveled around the globe to apologize for America. So white people don't have to apologize because they're in power. Black people do have to forgive because they are out of power and it's a survival strategy to be forgiving and very overtly passive in the face of oppression, lest that oppression get worse. So I would strongly doubt that any of these types of things go through the mind consciously of a person of color put in a position like this guy was when deciding whether or not to forgive at that level. It really is a personal decision and you're going through your personal thought process of how to respond to this horrible situation you've been put in. But as was talked about in the show, the, the person being interviewed, they, they said that they actually learned about the forgiveness while at church and 
heard the people in church talking about how great it was that that person forgave. And, and that's what's sort of perversely, uh, you know, backward and, and perpetuating of that oppressive system that when those members of that black church go out of their way to highly, highly praise a person for forgiving the murderer of their family member, they are helping to perpetuate that cycle of black people always needing to be seen as forgiving and submissive and above all non-threatening. Now, the irony is that that's a great way to be. And if everyone were forgiving and non-threatening, then we'd live in a much better society. So it's not that anyone is actually saying we need to be less forgiving. We need to be more angry. We need to be feared. No one is making that argument, especially not me. But the anger that comes up from a situation like this and, and the reason that people question these types of scenarios is that it's a double standard and that white people are never held to that same standard and they're never expected to apologize or, or to forgive in the same sort of way. They're expected to take vengeance, which they very often do. If you have thoughts about any of this, I would love to hear it. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details, on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And now to put a cap on our impeachment coverage by Limerick, at Limericking, writes on Twitter, The senators moved to acquit, disgracing the hill where they sit. What's more, it appears, after all of these years, you do have to hand it to Mitt. <laughs>